Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. This Wednesday, November 16th. And a special thank you to Jewel Andy, who is back at the station holding down the fort. It is a pleasure to welcome her to the afternoon show, Bang Up Job with Traffic at the top of the hour. Uh, thanks for being here, Jewel. Um, yeah, it happened. Uh, you know, we thought it would. We were pretty sure it would. We weren't 100% sure because with Donald Trump, you never know for sure. But he did. He made a long rambling speech where he told a lot of lies and uh, announced that he is running for president. His daughter Ivanka gave an, an interview to Fox News and she said she loves her father very, very much, but she's decided that she needs to spend time with her small children and her family and she will not be politically involved this time around. Apparently she and Jared are done with it. They are done. So there we have it. He is back in the race again. He is determined to come on strong to uh, get the Republicans who once opposed him and are opposing him again to cower in fear. Something else he accomplished before and could very well accomplish again. And uh, even somebody pointed out a lot of the a lot of the networks did not carry his speech live, which he was very incensed about. And here's the weird thing. Yes, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram and Sean Hannity are still very much on the Trump train. But. Fox Cable carried his announcement, but they didn't carry all of it. They stayed with it for a while, and then they broke away. Oh, very interesting. They broke away. Earlier this morning, CNN had uh, Steve Dale, their fact checker, go over the speech almost line by line, and he was like, yep, that wasn't true. Yep, that was a lie. No, what he said there was wrong. (laughs) I mean, he said something like, you know, everybody's worried about climate change, but the oceans are going to only increase like an eighth of an inch every year, and we should be focused on nuclear missiles. And Steve Dale said, no, um, that is actually... In some places, the ocean is rising significantly to the point where in the very near future, in the next decade or two, Mar-a-Lago could be a lot smaller. Parts of Mar-a-Lago will probably be underwater. So same old, same old. The media, I think, is a little bit wiser this time around. I mean, they couldn't be... (laughs) They couldn't be less aware than they were last time around, could they? And um, so here's what's going on with the Republican Party. Apparently, Kevin McCarthy has the votes to be speaker. 
even though it is not the congressional races that would potentially put the Republicans over the top have not been counted yet. We're still plodding along with that. So technically, we still do not have, (laughs) we still don't have all of those questions, one, but um, the Washington Post is saying that as of this morning, there are 209 seats that have been called for Democrats. There have been 217 seats called for Republicans, and uh, you only need 218 seats. So, there you go. Um, but Kevin McCarthy, if he does become Speaker, is it's going to be by the slimmest of margins. He's, um, he's going to have his hands full. He's not going to get them. I don't think he is going to get his party to move in lockstep on any issue. I think, you know, you know how they say sometimes be careful what you wish for. This is what he has wished for. And I think the next two years are going to be utterly miserable for him. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy, could it? No, it could not. Mitch McConnell was uh, interviewed. Uh, The voice you're going to hear, the reporter's voice, is the CNN reporter asking him about why the Republicans did so poorly in the midterms. This is a hallway interview. So, um, like, the reporter's question is kind of going to be kind of soft, and then you'll hear what Mitch McConnell has to say. But... um, what I find interesting in this soundbite that I'm about to share with you, Rachel Maddow said kind of like the media fell down on the job because part of the reason why the media kept picking up this red tsunami story before the midterms is because literally it seemed like any and every Republican kept telling reporters there's going to be a red wave. There's going to be a red tsunami. There's, you know, we are going to take over. You know, Lindsey Graham was talking about this. Other people were talking about this. Mitch McConnell said to the CNN reporter today, you know what? You never heard that talk from me. I was never predicting a red wave. He said, and here's the part that's interesting. He said, our polling never supported that. Our polling never supported that. So every Republican that was going on and on to any reporter who would listen about there's going to be a red tsunami, the Democrats are going to be buried... That was all, those were talking points, it was all public relations. They never had polling that showed that, never. Listen to what Mitch McConnell said in this exchange with this CNN reporter about how Republicans did in the midterms. Listen to this. One of the criticisms from Senator Scott and others who agree with him is that your decision not to have an agenda to run on opened up Republican candidates to attacks that they didn't really stand for anything. What is your response to the criticism that you are partially responsible for? Every one of our candidates knew what they were for, uh, expressed it quite clearly. 
Uh, it's pretty obvious, and all of you have been writing about it, uh, what happened. We underperformed among independents and moderates because their impression of many of the people in our party and leadership roles is that they're involved in chaos, negativity, uh, excessive uh, attacks, and it, it frightened uh, independent and moderate Republican voters. And we saw that, which is why you all recall I never predicted a red wave. We never saw that in any of our polling in the states that we were counting on uh, to win. There was no wave. We had national issue set that was favorable. But as a result of our own, uh, the perception many of them had that we were not dealing with issues in a responsible way and that we were spending too much time on negativity and uh, attacks and chaos, they were frightened. And so they pulled back. Uh, we, in two states, for example, excuse me, in two states, for example, got just crushed by independent voters, Arizona and New Hampshire. So we learned some lessons about this, and I think the lesson's pretty clear. Senate races are different. Candidate quality, you recall I said in August, is important. And in most of our states, we've met that test, and a few of them we did not. Candidate quality matters. That is his dig at Donald Trump, because a lot of the most extreme candidates were Donald Trump candidates. Donald Trump selected, Donald Trump endorsed, Donald Trump supported. I don't think that they have Donald Trump to blame for Herschel Walker, though. I would love to know which of the Republican brain trust members in Georgia thought that would be a fine idea. But he's right. I mean, let's face it. I I read you part of that editorial that Karl Rove wrote in the Wall Street Journal. Karl Rove, um, crazy in his own right, accused the Republican Party this time around of having too many candidates who were nuts. Too many candidates who were, by his own words, knuckleheads. So there's kind of mixed emotions about this declaration from Donald Trump. Is he going to do what he did last time? Just amaze all of the naysayers with his immense popularity? He seems to think he can do it again. He also um, seems to think, according to his inner circle, that making himself a candidate for president is going to protect him. That making himself a candidate for president is going to protect him from any more litigation, particularly any litigation coming out of the DOJ. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, uh, Jonathan Capehart has a great show on CNN, and he interviewed Neil Akatya. And uh, they were talking about this whole idea of whether or not declaring your candidacy gives you uh, protections from prosecution. It's a really fun, interesting exchange. We're going to take a break, and I'm going to share it with you when we come right back after this. 
Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. A WCPT 820. Donald Trump declared last night that he is officially in the race. He also said a lot of things that weren't true. Um, interestingly, on CNN, they were fact-checking him this morning. And remember, he said a lot of things that were untrue when he was running uh, to try to win in 2016. But it took quite a while before reporters actually started fact-checking him. <laughs> yeah, like two years into his administration. Anyway... It is a it is a different world. We'll see if he can pull off the same magic trick he did last time around. So the question becomes, is he right? Is the Department of Justice going to be more leery, more cautious about bringing an indictment against him for any of the many crimes he has committed? Because now he is a candidate. And, of course, we all know that the first thing he's going to say is this is because I'm a candidate. They're coming after me, folks. You know, this we they, I lived through this again. I'm living through it now. So um, Jonathan Capehart was interviewing Neil Katya, a lawyer, Neil Katya, about this whole idea of whether or not the de- the declaration of candidacy protects him from indictment. This is really good. Listen to this. Will that have any impact on DOJ's ability to indict him in the Mar-a-Lago documents case? Jonathan, zero impact. It's hard to think of something more legally irrelevant than that. I mean, I think running from president will protect Donald Trump from criminal charges just about as much as drinking bleach is going to protect you or me from COVID. Um, You know, I happen to be in England right now. And, you know, there obviously there are here there are kings in the United States. There are not. Um, The whole principle of the founders is no one is above the law. There's no full sovereign immunity. And if you think of Trump's arguments in combination in 2017 to 20, he said, you can't indict me because I'm a sitting president. In 2021, he said, you can't indict me because I'm a former president. Now he's trotting out in 2022. You can't indict me because I'm running for president. And the term we constitutional scholars have for that is one word nonsense (laughs) that is an official legal word nonsense so we'll see we shall see and i don't know honestly if he thinks this is going to keep him safe but at the very least it gives him fodder for his campaign remember his followers feed on anger. They really do. They feed on anger and hate. And this is just the kind of thing that he will use to stir them up. Let's go to the phone lines. Bob's calling in from Indiana. Hey, Bob, how are you? Oh, good afternoon, Joan. Well, praise Allah. The yellow peril has returned. <laughs> More more orange, really, than yellow, but I'll I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. All right. The the, the great rotting pumpkin, Charlie Brown, is rising. So, uh, but um, I heard something, and uh, which makes me wonder. Um, this morning, 
trying to think of how it goes, that um, he backed, I think it was, uh, I don't know what that was. Uh, I don't know, one of our squirrels uh, did something. Go ahead, Bobby. He backed uh, something like 225 candidates, and uh, only 30 of them didn't make it. But I also heard in the not-too-distant past that most of the candidates he would put his mark on either were shoe-ins or already had a Mm -hmm. good chance of coming through. So what I'd like to know is how many of the candidates he picked uh, already, you know, we're going to probably going to get in anyway. I mean, well, you know, I was talking again, about that in the months that were we leading up to the midterms. It was almost as if he sat back and saw either who was the incumbent or who was the front runner. And then he would jump in and, and give his endorsement. There were a few races. I'm thinking Dr. Oz, where he kind of went with somebody who initially didn't look like as strong a candidate as some others. But for the most part, his picks were very safe picks. And um, when on those occasions where his picks were more radical people, I mean, that's the Carrie Lakes of the world. That's the Dr. Oz's of the world um, who mm-hmm. um, sane people decided, mm, I don't think so. Yeah, well, it's typical of the Trump uh, method that, you know, make it fluff it up. Make it look bigger than reality. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Fun, Thank you. Have a good one. You too, Bobby. One more uh-huh. uh, one more bit of sound that I want to share with you. By the way, um, I think I mentioned this already. Excuse me, because I know I talked about this yesterday and I get confused. Um, behind closed doors, Mitch McConnell yesterday morning was like, I got the votes. I'm going to be the next minority leader. And then all of a sudden it leaked out that he was being challenged by Senator Rick Scott. Um, and Josh Hawley gave an interview, a hallway interview, the senator from Kansas, uh, who said, oh, I'm not voting for Mitch McConnell to lead us under any circumstances. Basically, Mitch McConnell is the reason we did so poorly in the midterms. And um, Mitch McConnell, again, late afternoon yesterday, came out and said, uh, this is just silliness. I have the votes. I'm absolutely going to be uh, leading the Republicans in the Senate. But here was the funny thing. It, that vote was supposed to take place today. And by the end of the afternoon yesterday, Mitch was saying, we're going to continue to discuss this tomorrow. And I thought, honey, if you got the votes, what's the discussion? You have them sit down. You have them vote. Well, Mitch was right. Whether there was discussion that preceded it or not, the vote was taken today, and Mitch McConnell has been reelected as the minority leader in the Senate for the next two years. Rick Scott uh, has been rebuffed. But it's going to be interesting. I don't know. You know, Mitch McConnell has always been brilliant about getting all of his Republican senators to fall in line, do what he says when he says to do it. Uh, you know, jump now, jump three inches. And everybody is like, OK, Mitch, here we go. Let's all jump three inches right here, right now. But um, 
Josh Hawley did another hallway interview, and he talked about Republic, the Republican Party and Republican candidates. And I think Josh Hawley is going to be a thorn in Mitch McConnell's side going forward because he didn't have a lot of good to say. I'll listen to this Josh Hawley interview. I think that this election was the funeral for the Republican Party as we know it. The Republican Party, is, as we have known it, is dead. And voters have made that clear. And in particular, the folks who did not vote for Republicans in this last election were independent voters, working class independent voters, folks who voted for President Obama uh, once upon a time, folks who then voted for President Trump but stayed home this time. We are not a majority party unless we can appeal to those voters. Absolutely not a majority party unless they can appeal to those voters. Let's go to the phone lines. Rob is calling in from Chicago. Hello, Rob. How are you? Yes, Joan. Uh, so if a bank robber gets caught by the police, can he tell them, you can't arrest me, I'm a presidential candidate? There you go. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, why not? Okay. Yeah, if I get pulled over for speeding or running a red light, I'll be like, I'm I'm running, I'm running for office. You cannot give me a ticket. Yeah, yeah. I see that. I see, I'm wearing a button right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Pretty ridiculous, isn't it? Very. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. Let's go back to the phone lines. Roosevelt is calling in from Chicago. Roosevelt, are you there? Hey, Roosevelt, how are you? How are you doing, John? Hold on. Okay. I, got, I have to turn the radio off. Um, uh, thank you for taking my call, John. Okay, here's the thing. Here's what I, the way I see it. Um, I hope you're here. Can you can hear me, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. I think he is so arrogant that, remember, when he was president, he wasn't supposed to make money. So he broke the, the mold as far as a president making money. He was making money off uh, Secret Service while he was. Uh, yep. Uh, rent, rent yeah, he made a big deal about oh, I'm rich. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna take right. the presidential right. salary, but I'm gonna make sure the Secret Service and all of the yeah. militaries who have layovers stay in my hotels and pay a premium. So yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's my point. And now, now Carter, you know, with the peanut farm and you know, all that. I don't. I don't want to go over that. But anyway, so. He, he probably figures, I could get away with anything, because he hasn't paid for that either, and there was nothing done about that either. There yep. was such a, 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 a number, a high number of things that he just bloodily broke the law, and no other president has ever done. So I know, and if he doesn't get held to account, it's going to set a bad precedent for whoever comes after. Yeah. Roosevelt, I'm sorry, yeah. I, I just realized that we have gone over. I need to take a commercial break. I'm so sorry. Thank you for calling in and joining the conversation. Um, I'm going Thank to you. be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It has uh, become election season for the city of Chicago. The uh, Chicago's the Chicago mayor's race. Um, probably, I'm guessing that candidate wise, we have probably topped out. Remember, the election is February 28th, and unless somebody runs away with it, uh, we will be in a runoff situation, much like I think when Lori Lightfoot ran. I think we had 14 people in that race. 
She and Tony Preckwinkle were the top two vote getters. They went to a runoff. It's pretty likely that a situation like that is going to be happening again because we have a crowded field. Let's see. Um, who do we have at this moment in time? Well, of course, we have Lori Lightfoot, who is definitely running for re-election. She has been releasing on social media her ads, and apparently her slogan this time around is going to be, Lori delivers. Uh, there's two young men in an apartment, you know, debating about what she's, you know, one guy says, well, she hasn't done that much. And then the other guy says, oh, no, you're mistaken. She did this. She did that. She did this. She did that. She accomplished this. Blah, 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 blah. And then the doorbell rings and the guy goes over and it's uh, Lori Lightfoot standing there with a pizza. And she's like, you know, you wanted a delivery from Lori Lightfoot. So there <laughs> that's going to be. That's going to be her argument, and I'm not saying that she hasn't accomplished some things. You know, a lot of times we focus on what isn't getting done or what isn't getting done as quickly as it should possibly be getting done. There was um, just a, the last city council meeting that was uh, supposed to take place this week and ended up being adjourned because they didn't have a quorum. That was a special city council meeting that was supposed to vote out of committee a proposal to increase the real estate transfer tax. Um, still waiting for the real estate. What would happen is if you sold a property for a million dollars or more, the transfer tax that you pay to the city of Chicago would increase um, kind of, I mean, it's like point something. I think it's point seven five right now, and they wanted to make it like 2.6. And that money was going to be used to create shelter for unhoused people. And... Um, Lori Lightfoot, um, who herself had touted an increase in the transfer tax at one time and then decided it was a bad idea. Who knows? Maybe the business community didn't like it. Um, she walked away from this proposal. There were only 25 people present, ready to vote on it. That wasn't enough for a quorum. And so it's gone down by the wayside. It's easy to take a look at things like that. But you do have to remember that everybody doesn't accomplish everything and always does, doesn't always accomplish it on your schedule. So I think we're going to be hearing more from uh, the Lightfoot campaign about the things that she has gotten done. And uh, right now our candidate list is um, Chewy Garcia, Sophia King, Jamal Green, Cam Buckner, Paul Vallis, Roderick Sawyer, Willie Wilson, Ray Lopez. That's uh, that's my count at this point. And, of course, uh, our very own WCPT host, Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, has uh, been in the race for a while. What I'm going to do now that we've got the midterms behind us, yes, I know we're going to still pay attention to Georgia, but going forward, I'm going to try to be talking to one or more of the mayoral candidates every week. So our good friend Brandon Johnson is here right now to talk about his campaign. Brandon, how are you? Hey, Joan, I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. 
You are very welcome. Um, well, how's it going so far? Tell me about um, the successes that you're finding on the campaign trail. Yeah, thank you very much. It's good to be with WCPT listening audience. Of course, I've enjoyed uh, being in this space uh, over the last several years. I'm hosting the show on Sunday, and obviously things have changed a little bit. So my time is uh, is is very much spent moving from one end of the city to the other. And over the last couple of weeks, I announced three weeks ago, I believe, um, my candidacy for mayor of Chicago because I, you know, simply believe that. Um, the type of dynamic that many Chicagoans, working class folks are experiencing in the city, it's left people out. Um, it's, it's, it's been a tremendous disappointment over the course of these last four years in particular. Um, you know, but the issues that this city has uh, had to deal with um, have been issues that have plagued our communities for, you know, for, for decades now. And, you know, part of my work as an organizer, as a public school teacher um, here in Chicago has been committed to addressing many of those um, challenges that working people experience and that poor folks are dealing with every single day and, you know, lifting up um, our issues and concerns from the perspective of, of, a, of, a, of legitimate progressive ideology. Um, and that's what my work has entailed. And that's the work that I'm uh, prepared to do once I'm mayor of Chicago. Talk about your union endorsements. Yeah, I'm very, very much humbled and you know honored to, to receive the support of labor, uh, as you know, um, and especially those of us who, who um, are progressives, um, understand the, the connection between the labor movement and our fight for civil rights and for justice. And thus far, I've received the support of the Chicago Teachers Union, the Illinois Federation of Teachers, the American Federation of Teachers, which is the international a uh, union that has committed a million dollars to this race, um, SEIU 73. Um, these are county workers, city workers, um, also SEIU, um, ATII, healthcare workers. These are individuals who work in hospitals. They work in um, long-term care facilities. They work in child care. In other words, these are the voices of Chicago. And all of these professions, as you know, one, one of the things that they all have in common is they are, they are made up of overwhelmingly women, women of color, um, but these are the people who reflect the values of, you know, this listening audience. And to have the support of our labor siblings in this moment, um, again, I'm very humbled by it. But it's a real testament of the work that we've done collectively over the course of, of several years now to bring a minimum wage increase, to bring an elected representative school board for the first time in the history of Chicago, um, to hold, um, you know, the, the Illinois Hospital Association accountable to make sure that the type of regulations that we have in place protect workers as well as um, patients. I mean, these are a host of, of challenges that we've had to endure over the course of years in this city. And I've fought alongside of um, all of these brave workers um, throughout the city of Chicago and really throughout the country. And to have that support is, is really a testament of our collective struggle together. And those are the voices that will be prioritized um, not only in this race, but these are the voices that will be prioritized once I'm mayor of Chicago. The voices. A lot of times, candidates I've spoken with value union endorsements, even with, I know you said that uh, one of the unions was going to be contributing a million dollars to the race, but um, a lot of times candidates I speak to really value union endorsements because unions are oftentimes really good at boots on the ground kind of campaign work. Do you expect that kind of boots on the ground help from the unions who've endorsed you? 
Well, that's happening already. You're absolutely right. And so, as you know, Joan, in my uh, life before I was a Cook County commissioner, uh, not only was I an organizer, but I was a part of the political operation of the labor movement, where that's what we do, from uh, phone bankers to uh, individuals who's, who, who knock on doors. And just on this past election day, as we were looking to secure uh, protecting um, the, the rights of workers through our Constitution, uh, we have well over 200 volunteers who were part of uh, my mayoral operation, volunteers all over the city of Chicago, um, delivering the message of, of, of the type of structure that we need in this city, in this state, to protect workers. Because when we protect workers, uh, we protect you know families who send their children to public schools. When we protect workers, we're protecting those who rely upon public transportation and public health. Um, public health is dear and important to me. Um, having grown up with asthma and suffered uh, with asthma over the course of my uh, young life and into my you know, late teens and early 20s, where I use the Fantas Clinic at the county hospital as a part of my health care. So, mm-hmm. so, yes, it's absolutely the, um, the, the part that excites me the most is individuals who are part of the neighborhoods who will go out into their neighborhoods as ambassadors of working people to tell the story of all of our collective struggles, but how that collective work together is building an operation that, quite frankly, that we haven't seen in a generation where whether you're the first ward of the 50th ward, black, brown, white, Asian, young, old, gay, straight, or trans community, the, the work of workers um, has really ignited and propelled my candidacy in a position where, you know, clearly people are not only paying attention to us, but they recognize that we are the, the candidate to, to watch because of the connections that we do have with, with all of the workers who will be knocking on doors and mm-hmm. making phone calls and sending out emails on behalf of working people in my candidacy. Well, Brandon, we need to do, as you know from doing radio, we need to take a break. I have lots more questions for you. I'm talking to mayoral candidate Brandon Johnson. Uh, he is also a Cook County commissioner. He also works with the Chicago Teachers Union. We will be back with more right after this. This is a potter's field. When people can't pay for their funerals, they are buried here. It is a lonely, desolate place, littered with unmarked headstones. No one visits. No one leaves flowers. But it doesn't have to be that way. For as low as $1 a day, you can ensure your family will have the money to pay your funeral expenses. We offer burial insurance plans that pay up to $30,000. Considering the average funeral costs more than $10,000, that's peace of mind for your family. There are no medical exams, your rates won't increase, and your policy cannot be canceled as long as you make your premium payments. Call now to get approved in minutes and ensure your final resting place is more than just a pauper's grave in a potter's field. 800-323-8137-800-323-8137-800-323-8137. That's 800-323-8137. Paid for by Final Expense Direct. Cold floors? The problem is probably down below in the basement or crawl space. Hi, I'm Roy Spencer with Permaseal. I'm happy to say that we can now help make your basement and crawl space warmer and therefore your upstairs more comfortable with our new product, Permafoam. We spray this insulating foam between your floor joists, which will not only increase your energy efficiency, but will also deter insects, rodents, and is mold and mildew resistant. 
Permafoam can be installed in just one day and is twice as effective as the old-fashioned fiberglass bats. For over 40 years, homeowners in Chicagoland and Northwest Indiana have trusted Permaseal to make their homes healthier and more valuable. Call a contractor you can rely on. Permaseal. 800-421-SEAL. That's 800-421-7325. Or visit permaseal.net. WCPT 820, Chicago's Progressive Talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. I am joined by one of the candidates who wants to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago, Brandon Johnson. You may know him through the CTU. You may know him from uh, uh, that he's a Cook County commissioner. You may have heard his voice, his dulcet tones here on WCPT. The man is everywhere <laughs> and um, has been a candidate, has been a declared candidate for a while now. We've been talking about how the campaign has been going. He's garnered a significant number of union endorsements. Brandon, as you well know, uh, Chewy Garcia just recently threw his hat in the ring. And one of the uh, articles that I read about it said, you know, when he ran for mayor last time around, which was a while ago, but, you know, he garnered a lot of the union endorsements that have already gone your way. But, you know, he is a congressman. He is a very popular in uh, in his community. Do you feel that he is your number one challenger, your number one competitor at this point? You know, I think the focus right now, and this is the focus that I've had, quite frankly, since uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot stepped stepped foot in the office, is that, you know, she copied and pasted the work um, that I've been connected to over the course of the last 15 years, at the very least. You know, she promised that she would support an elected representative school board. She broke that promise. You know, she promised that she would bring environmental justice and staff up the environmental uh, department in the city of Chicago. She broke that promise. Um, we saw how that played out on the southeast side of Chicago uh, when she was adamant about moving a toxic um, corporation to the southeast side of Chicago that was already overwhelmed and, uh, and littered with, with, with pollution. Um, we saw that promise broken with Hill Cold, the, the entire debacle there in the middle of of, of the pandemic, uh, you just mentioned um, the, the real estate transfer tax. You know, she said that she would, you know, commit uh, her administration to dealing with the unhoused, and she broke that promise. I mean, just on and on and on. Uh, she has demonstrated that the progressive values that she um, that she copied and pasted. Um, she reneged on all of those promises, and you know that's why the, the progressive movement is surrounding my candidacy. And, and they recognize that my leadership um, over the course of the last 15 years in this city, at the very least, and really it goes back to you know, 20 years of you know fighting for working people, um, the work that I've done on the county board, where you know we took on um, you know the real estate um, entity um, that wanted to continue to discriminate against individuals who were formerly incarcerated. We made that illegal in, in, in Cook County government. Um, through the work of the Justice for Black Lives, the work that I've done on the county board, where we now have hundreds of millions of dollars that are available uh, through our equity plan, which allows for everyday regular folks to sit on those boards to help dictate and provide direction of how those dollars can be spent. 
And so far, those dollars have been spent towards the largest guaranteed income pilot program in the entire country. We have dedicated a um, billion dollars, essentially a, a hundred million dollars that could get up to a billion dollars of medical um, debt relief. And so, you know, the the, mm-hmm. the the moment that we're experiencing right now is really has been brought to us by the failures of this administration. And of course, there are other individuals, including Congressman Garcia, um, that believe that they can do the job. But I think the, the real question that we have to ask is, you know, who are the individuals that are lining up behind my candidacy? And as you said, you know, labor is lining up behind me. Uh, we have independent political organizations, whether it's the 33rd Ward, the 35th Ward, the 39th Ward, IPO. Um, we have black, brown, white, Asian uh, leaders across the city that are supporting me. And so progressives, as well as labor, uh, have made it very clear who the progressive candidate is in this moment. And that person is me, and I'm very humbled by that. Tell me, I know you've been on the campaign trail. I know you've been talking to people. Tell me one story of a potential voter you spoke with who wanted to share their concerns or their questions with you. Yeah, that's a very good question. Thank you for for raising that. You know, the person that that jumps out, we were in Woodlawn a couple of weeks ago. I was knocking on doors on the south side of Chicago. And what I heard from from, um, Ms. Johnson, and no relation, by the way, so I don't want the listeners to think that I set this up and knocked on my aunt's door. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no relation. But Miss Johnson and her husband came to the door as well. They were on their way out. And what struck me about her story was that she said she was afraid to leave her home. Uh, there's a jewel just blocks away from their home. Actually, you can actually see jewel from their the, the grocery store from their front door. And she just said it's not just her. Neighbors are afraid to come out. And this is something that's especially um, um, important to me because I don't believe anybody else in this race um, thinks more about public safety than I do. You know, my wife and I, we celebrated 25 years of marriage next year. So wow. Keep this as, as a secret. Uh, I'm going <laughs> to plan a very, very big uh, 25th wedding anniversary for her once I'm married. Oh. Um, you know, but, but we're raising our three children, Braden, Ethan, and Owen, 8, 10, and 14, on the west side of Chicago in Austin. It's one of the most dynamic communities in Austin, but like what Ms. Johnson is experiencing in Woodlawn, my wife and I are experiencing this in Austin because it is, mm-hmm. again, one of the most violent neighborhoods. And my wife and I just changed one of the windows from our two little ones' bedroom from one of the bullets that have come through our home. Oh. And what people are, are, are horrified by... It's what, what my wife and I are concerned about. It's the issue of public safety and what, what, what we do know, though, and this is what you know, I shared with Ms. Johnson, this is what I've been sharing with residents across the city of Chicago, that the safest cities in America have something in common. And what all safe cities in America possess, they have well-funded public schools, they have solid transportation, they have parks that are actually open, great recreation, and, of course, they have great health care and access um, to jobs. And in the short term, what we have to do is provide some immediate relief for young people who are looking for opportunity. You know, I can look in the eyes of young people, much like I experienced when I started teaching 15 years ago, Joan, where you can see the hopelessness because their homes are being destroyed, mm-hmm. their houses have been shut down, their schools are being closed. 
uh, jobs are not available, the schools are not funded. It shouldn't be a wonder and a surprise to anyone that we are experiencing the outbreak of trauma. No one should be too poor to live in one of the wealthiest cities in the history of the world. And if we're serious about having safe communities, and I am, and I have a tremendous incentive. You know, I have a 14-year-old son who rides his bike, and to be honest with you, I I hate to negotiate with him because he wants to ride his bike everywhere. But this is also my 14-year-old who's a student at Kenwood on the south side of Chicago. And within three weeks of his time at Kenwood, one of the, his stu- one of the students at Kenwood leaves out for lunch and they get murdered over lunch. Oh. And the, 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 the harshness of living in the city of Chicago, much like uh, Ms. Johnson expressed, it's the same experience that I'm having raising a family on the west side of Chicago. And we know that there is a direct correlation between the type of investments that we make available, economic investments in communities, and the type of public safety and security that, that, that those same communities um, enjoy because of those investments. And that is my commitment. I'm going to stop that nothing until we have fully funded schools, parks and recreation, healthcare, jobs, transportation, and environmental justice which creates an opportunity for us to actually um, create jobs. That, that, that has to be the work of, of, of political leadership. That has to be the commitment and the conviction of anybody who wants to lead the city of Chicago. And I possess that conviction. I have everything to lose if we don't get it right, because I'm raising a family in Chicago. And unfortunately, too many families have lost. They've lost because the failures of administrations that, that, that break promises or do not believe in working people. I am working people. I have the incentive because what I want for my family, I want for all families in the city of Chicago. Uh, Brandon, do you have, um, are there, I haven't seen this. I assume it will happen sooner or later. Are there any debates scheduled or any candidate forums scheduled that you're going to be attending? Yeah, so there are a couple of that are in the works, so I, I, I probably wouldn't be appropriate for me to, to throw, throw those out there right now. I do know that the northwest side of Chicago, I can say that, that they're planning one. Um, there was a forum that was held um, at one of the uh, Jewish temples um, on the north side of Chicago. Not every person attended that one. I think most folks were there except for the mayor, um, in fact. Um, and I know that there are some that are coming up in January. I actually think it's going to be one of the most robust debates that we've seen in Chicago in a long time. I we think so, too. People get to have front and center our values debated. And, but here's the thing for me, though. I, I, am, I am so tired of debating our values, <laughs> Joe. Mm-hmm. I am. And we do it on this station. I've done it on this station the people who listen to this station every single day, we know what it's going to take for, for justice and equity to actually uh, be the prevailing set of policies. You just need someone who is committed to it. And yep. the work that we're building across this city from the first ward to the fifth ward with well over 200 volunteers and that operation is growing. Labor supporting me, independent political organizations, the support of people like Delia Ramirez, you know, the first, you know, Guatemalan, you know, the first Latina from the Midwest going to Congress. I mean, we're, we, we've done organizing work over the course of several years together. Um, I don't think either one of us imagined that our work as organizers would turn into the type of political leadership that we are um, embarking upon. But clearly there is an appetite for it. And uh, we're, we're, we're ready for it. You know, Joe, we're ready for it. 
Well, it sounds like it. It sounds like you're uh, getting out there, knocking on the doors, um, taking positions. And uh, I uh, I can't wait because I think you made a really good point, Brandon. I think that when you guys are on these uh, stages together, I think it is going to be fascinating because there is a lot going on and there is a lot that needs to happen and I, I look forward. I look forward to hearing from you on those stages. Brandon, thank you so much for being with us today. And I would like to, I want to keep having you back. I want to keep um, my listeners up on what is going on with this mayor's race. So we're going to be reaching out again and again and again. All right. Anytime. We're here for it. <laughs> Thanks, Brandon. Um, I'm going to take a break for news. We are going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. You know, we had an election not too long ago. Uh, They said there was going to be a red tsunami, but there was not. Democrats did pretty good. We have control of the Senate. And while it doesn't look good long term right now, the uh, House is still kind of up in the air. We talk from time to time with Isaac Wright. He's with uh, Forward Solutions uh, Strategy Group. Let's see if I get that right. Forward Solutions Strategy Group. Yes. And uh, one of the things that he specializes in is looking at rural voters and what they uh, who the candidates they vote for, what their issues are, et cetera, and so forth. So we thought it would be a great time to get Isaac back so we could take a look at the midterms and pick his brains for what he saw happening on uh, November 8th. Isaac, welcome back to the show. How are you? Good. How are you? I am just peachy. Thank you very much for asking. So what... What were the surprises and um, what happened on the midterms that really pleased you? Anything that might have happened that worried you? Give me your thoughts. So one of the things that worried me, by and large, we did not see as much of a strategic outreach on the Democratic side to rural voters as uh, we would have hoped. Um, However, when you say strategic outreach, what does that mean, Isaac? Well, I think we see huge sums on the Democratic side for turnout in uh, urban and suburban areas, persuasion in the suburban areas, but we don't see an equal investment in rural America. You know, uh, when Bill Clinton won for president, he won over a thousand rural counties in America. When Joe Biden won for president, he won just over a hundred. Right. The good news is that we are winning in the counties where we're working. We're just only working in about a hundred out of the thousand that we were winning when Bill Clinton won for president. And that's where we can do a better job. Uh, But we did see movement with rural voters. You know, our last uh, pre-election focus group, we saw the Dobbs decision becoming a greater motivator uh, for how people are going to vote for candidates than what we've seen in the summer. Um, We saw in our uh, report released in October uh, from some early fall work we did about January 6th in the hearings there that we saw conservative and Republican voters in some instances moving uh, their vote based on their concern over the MAGA movement's effort to overthrow the government on January 6th. And I think that's, those are two of the big factors we saw play out on Election Day overall with the electorate, including rural America, 
there was a concern to defend democracy, uh, and there was a concern to defend a woman's right to choose and fundamental constitutional rights over one's own body. Mm-hmm. And those things play in our favor. You know, and, and you can look, you know, for example, uh, uh, in Pennsylvania, right? Uh, I think that's probably one of the best cases we've looked at so far to see where there was some movement with rural voters, right? That was the uh, Fetterman, now uh, Senator-elect Fetterman, I'm proud to say, versus Dr. Oz, right? And sure enough, of course, Dr. Oz beat uh, Fetterman pretty handily in rural areas in like 68 to 29, 30%. But the thing is, Fetterman performed almost two and a half points better in rural Pennsylvania than Biden did in 2020 in rural Pennsylvania. Why? That, do, you have, do you know why? And, well, I think he leaned into blue collar issues. He talked about it from a narrative perspective, and he made a specific effort to go after voters in rural counties, to go after the entire electorate, not just segments of the electorate. And that's what makes a difference. And again, just shifting two and a half points in the uh, rural counties made a big difference. Um, You know, it made a difference. He, uh, like I said, he outperformed Biden uh, in rural counties and Oz underperformed Trump, which I think is also a statement about um, the two issues we talked about earlier, Dobbs' decision in defending democracy and where that fell. And so that suggests that Fetterman not only not only did we see an effort there that turned out Democratic voters, but there's some effort there. There may have been some persuasion going on, right? And that's what we need to engage in long term. Um, the turnout gap was biggest in Pennsylvania amongst rural voters. Fetterman received 80 83% of the votes that Biden did in 2020, while Oz garnered only 73% of the 2020 Trump vote. That 10 points difference. So, Isaac, let me see if I understand what you were just saying. Because of those numbers about Fetterman and Biden and Oz and Trump, you're saying, you know, you're looking at this group who came out from Biden and you're saying that those are Democratic voters and how many of those did Fetterman get? And you're looking at the Trump voters as Republican voters and you're saying, well, how many of those did Oz get? And the differences tell you what? That that margin is what made the difference in the outcome uh, for Fetterman. Uh, uh, you know, I won't say if it was solely what made the difference, but certainly over a hundred thousand extra vote margin in rural Pennsylvania made a big difference um, in that election, and it shows that we can do better with rural voters when we put the effort in. And by effort, are you talking about door knocking or what what is what does that effort consist of? All of the above. Right. It involves door knocking, canvassing. You know, there's been some research on deep canvassing uh, with rural voters, but it, it involves door knocking, canvassing, phone calls. It involves being there, having a campaign presence there, having the candidate there. Right. And I think the Fetterman campaign did a specific job to go after the whole state, not just voter-dense population, voter-dense geography, but to go after the whole state. And that includes things like like uh, radio, uh, online targeting uh, of voters across the state. Those are the kind of things that can make a difference. Here's what I would like to see happen. I think we need to look for games like that. Um, I think we saw, uh, for example, in Georgia, Warnock was outperforming um, Abrams in rural counties 
uh, and that made a big difference uh, in the outcome of those two races. Now, at the same time, you also saw the Republican counterpart in each race um, want the uh, Senate candidate underperforming the gubernatorial candidate uh, in the metropolitan areas as well. So that was definitely a factor. But again, anywhere where we see that movement, we need to look at that not just as a uh, something to cheer for and go home, but how do we build infrastructure around that? How do we have a 365-day-a-year campaign to move the needle on the Democratic brand, to move the needle on what it means to be a Democrat in rural Pennsylvania, in rural Georgia? Sure, the Ohio Senate race didn't turn out the way we would like it to have turned out, but how do we build infrastructure there? Because Tim Ryan lost uh, to Vance this time, but we've got uh, uh, Sherrod Brown coming up uh, in two more years. There. That's a seat we need to defend. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I'd like you to weigh in on, we, well, when I say we, Isaac, I mean me, uh, especially here in the Midwest, I, I have this mindset where, you know, urban voters are Democratic, rural voters tend to be Republican. Um, is that, you know, because we saw that kind of thing in Wisconsin, you know, we've seen it in Illinois. Is that true of the entire country, that sort of rule of thumb, or is that an outdated idea of mine that I should be moving on from? Well, right now, that is pretty much a reality across the country. However, we need to break that mindset by changing that reality, right? Um, Again, I I use the example, if you look, when Clinton won for president, uh, over a thousand rural counties voted for Bill Clinton. Just over a hundred voted for Joe Biden. Right? When we're losing ten to one in rural counties in America, that's a pretty big statement. That yes, that is a general rule across the country. Um, that when we go to more metropolitan cores, they tend to vote more Democrat. More rural and small town areas tend to vote more Republican. But we have to change that reality. It's not a mindset. The numbers bear it out as a reality, but we have to change that mindset. We have to go after every vote just the way our system is set up, no matter how rural or how metropolitan, urban, any given state. Everybody gets two U.S. senators. That's how the Electoral College works. What was it about Bill Clinton that rural voters really liked so much? Well, Bill Clinton was a uh, was from small town rural America himself, right? Um, I'm sure we're both old enough. We remember uh, man, the Man from Hope video from his '92 campaign that talked about his boyhood growing up in Hope, Arkansas. Um, but he also identified with the values of hard work. A lot of those consistent values we've seen uh, in the Rural Voter Institute research. Um, and he leaned in to blue-collar uh, working issues. And again, those are the same kind of kitchen table issues that the Fetterman campaign leaned in on. Hmm. Interesting. <clears throat> Interesting. And what was it about Joe Biden that didn't resonate in that same way? Was it a, a personality thing? Was it that there wasn't the, the same kind of outreach That was no fault of Biden. That was just the way we as Democrats have allowed Republicans to own that segment of the playing field. If you look, uh, for example, at the Obama numbers uh, in rural America, you can sort of see the bar graph going down over the years. 
Um, that was not Biden's fault. I would say that is us as Democrats, us as the progressive movement at large, that we haven't been making the same effort with the rural constituency, with small town voters that we have with the rest of the country. Hmm. We need to take a break. I'm talking to Isaac Wright. He's an expert on rural voting. We are going to continue our discussion right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Isaac Wright. He is a partner with the Forward Solutions Strategy Group. He is an expert on rural voting. Isaac, you were talking about all these different focus groups and things that you did. Do you do you do that all the time or do you just do that before an election? And how do you decide who you're going to talk to and what you're going to ask? So in 2020, we began our research that we're continuing to this day uh, in rural Midwestern battleground states. Or excuse me, with rural and small town voters in Midwestern battleground states. Um, so in 2020, we did tons of research. Um, we did baseline values research, worldview research, political view research, etc. Then translated that into value system analysis, um, into uh, looking at current issues and the elections uh, in 2021. We found some really interesting threads that surprised us in 2020. And so in 2021, we did deep dive research on those things. And then this year in 2022, uh, we did uh, research at, at sort of regular intervals every six weeks, I would estimate, looking back on it, um, about sort of the topics of public discourse in the election, whether it was the war in Ukraine, gas prices, inflation, the Dobbs decision repealing Roe versus Wade. January 6th and the congressional hearings. Um, and then we sort of culminated with a pre-election um, focus group that really sort of gave us insight for the first time that there was uh, some real hope uh, for moving that needle with rural and small town voters going into the election. Um, I would say in our next to last group uh, that we did in the early part of fall, uh, about the January 6th, the events of January 6th and the congressional hearings, we saw conservative Republican voters who said, look, democracy is too important. Not only can I not vote for Trump, but I cannot vote for somebody for Congress who supports Trump. Uh, and then I think we saw that play out on Election Day with folks who put democracy in the American Constitution um, ahead of loyalty to Trump or the Republican Party. We also saw in our research in the summer that uh, specifically small town and rural women voters uh, felt very passionately about the Dobbs decision. Uh, for example, the Kansas ballot initiative on a ballot initiative, the vote would have been really strong, but that didn't necessarily translate at that point into how people would decide on voting for a candidate in the fall. And by the time our last and we offered some ideas in that research report about how Democrats could translate the issue specifically into candidate choices. And by the time our last pre-election focus group rolled around, um, we had started to see movement of folks translating um, the Dobbs decision, not just into how they would vote on a ballot initiative uh, about a woman's right to choose about bodily autonomy, but how they would then choose 
uh, who to vote for on the November ballot. And again, that gave us some hope. And I think that hope paid off on Election Day. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Democrats, uh, excuse, the party in power in the White House has traditionally lost elections in their first midterms uh, for the House and Senate. Uh, and these look like it looks like by the time all the votes are tallied in the House, this will be the smallest margin ever lost uh, by a party controlling the White House in their first midterm. Wow. LBJ, LBJ at least. Right. Huh. That is a t- not only to what the Biden administration has gotten done, um, but that is also a testament to the threat to democracy, the threat to bodily autonomy that the party of Trump represents not lost on me that we're talking about this, you know, the day after Trump announced his his intentions for the White House once again. So do, when you do these, when you, you do these groups and you do them and then you do them again, do you ask them the same questions you said, like we saw movement here and we saw movement there? So you do you ask these people the same questions or do you ask uh, a, a month or two later, a different slate of questions. I'm just really curious about this whole process. Both, uh, right? Like our our post our our, our post election, or excuse me, our last pre election focus group, we specifically went back and looked at the most important threads we thought we had found um, during the year. Um, whether that was the question of how the Dobbs decision would relate, not just into voting on a ballot issue, but how it would relate into voting for candidates, what it was people's feelings about gas prices and inflation, what it meant to them personally, what it was as a priority in their own budget and life, and how it impacted their candidate views and political views, um, as well as the January 6th. In our last uh, pre-election focus group, we went back and recapped all of those things to see where we saw And it was the movement you would hope to see going into the election, right? Um, People were hyper aware of gas prices and inflation. That was still the top concern, but it was not as bad as it had been in a lot of people's view um, earlier in the summer. Um, The Dobbs decision repealing Roe versus Wade was not just a standalone issue, but it was beginning to take hold of this is going to impact how I will vote for candidates in the fall. And then we saw sort of the consistency of the feeling about January 6th and that, that, that there were Republican voters, there were conservative voters who said democracy matters, the American Constitution, our form of government matters, the peaceful transfer of power matters, and that is a greater priority than partisanship um, and so that was uh, completely a recap, frankly, to see where there was movement on those issues. Isaac, I read somewhere where somebody said, oh, well, you know, yes, Dobbs had an effect, but it wore off. And if and if the election, if the midterm election had been held in July, you know, right after this all went down, that that there would have been a Democratic tsunami. Do you think that's accurate? Well, I can only speak for our research, which was with small town and rural voters. And I would say with our research, it would actually be the reverse of that. While the feeling was passionate and intense in the summer, it was top of mind with every single voter that we talked to in our folks groups in the summer. Uh, it was not something that yet translated into how people were going to vote for candidates, right? Um, they felt very strongly about the issue. Again, if it were a ballot initiative like in Kansas, there would have been no question the outcome. But then when you when, when we moved to the topic, too, and how is this going to impact your 
uh, vote in the midterm elections in November, uh, it wasn't. You know, it was way down the list if it even registered. And it was only with time that the same voters began to, to uh, translate that to not just how they would vote on a ballot initiative or a standalone issue, but it matters who we vote for for, for the U.S. House. It matters who we vote for for the Senate. It matters who we vote for for the State House. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was um, that that happened. And I think part of that was because of not just our party, but of progressive groups uh, across the table who carried that message. Right. Uh, one of the points we made in our research was based on the based on our research in the summer. The issue would only translate to candidate races, at least with the segment of voters that we were working with. If Democrats did an effective job of tying Republican opponents individually to the most extreme parts of the Republican agenda on choice. And I think mm-hmm. if that had time to take hold and effect, that's when folks said, you know what? It's not just gas prices and inflation, right? This matters. Who I vote yeah. for for Congress matters for bodily autonomy. Um, we are going to be in about a minute, Isaac. We need to take a break. And uh, we have a number of callers who want to join our conversation. We will get to those calls. And also, uh, hopefully, uh, if we can get through all the callers. I also, before I let you go today, I do want to talk about our neighbor to, uh, to the north, Wisconsin, which is, um, which is a really interesting state. Well, I think, frankly, What's happening, what happened in Wisconsin, what happened in Ohio, what happened in Michigan, I think they're all really fascinating uh, political outcomes that, that really could uh, make a difference. Real quick, before we, before we go to break, I saw somebody say that um, one of the things that, you know, Democrats need to remember is that you have to be in it to win it and that there are especially down ballot in a lot of states that there are, the person was arguing there should never, ever be a race where there's not two candidates. And then some people say, well, that's a waste of time and money. Um, what do you think real quickly before we go to break? Is it a waste of time and money or should there always be a D on the ballot no matter what? I think we need candidates on the ballot because until we have an organized effort, to address the brand deficit in small town and rural America, those candidates are carrying the brand, right? Mm-hmm. They are what it means to be a Democrat in their community. So not only do we need those candidates on the ballot, we need to have good candidates on the ballot. Yes. Even in tough races, even in races that may seem unwinnable, that matters. Okay. Isaac, we're going to take a break. Isaac Wright is with Forward Solutions Forder. <laughs> Forward Solutions Strategy Group. That was difficult. Uh, we've got a lot of callers want to join the conversation. We're going to get to those right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Isaac Wright is an expert on rural voting. He is a partner with Forward Solutions Strategy Group. They uh, study these things in great detail. Uh, we have a number of callers who want to join our conversation. Let's go to the phone lines. Jim is calling in from Chicago. Jim, Jim, you're on with me and Isaac Wright. Good afternoon. Uh, in my mind, we're going to have a, a virtual tie in the house. Now, you go through history, do they always vote lockstep to their party, 
or are they really beholding their constituents? My point is, I was watching Nancy Pelosi on Sunday, and what was paramount in her mind was health care. Health care, health care, health care. Now, these people in these rural communities must need health care. They're not immune to disease. And if we keep bringing that up over and over and over again, and, and, and watch the Republicans vote against it in the House, I think it's to our great advantage. Anyway, you guys have a great afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Isaac, does your research bear that out, that if our message is just health care, health care, health care, that'll be a winning message in rural areas? So I agree with Jim 100%. We should be talking about health care as an issue. I want to separate that from message, right? Health care is an issue. It's not necessarily the message, right? And that's one thing we have to think about. Messages are value-based. Okay, explain so what, the, explain uh, what you're talking about here, um, how an issue is different than a message. So health care is the issue. It should illustrate part of our message. So what is our message, right? Um, is it hard work pays off, right, that uh, there is opportunity in this country still uh for those who can work hard, uh, for those that we are, uh, that, that we give, um, what's the phrase? Uh, I'm, I'm, what's, forgive me, Joan, I'm looking for the phrase here. Uh, not that Those that we give the opportunity to, those that we embrace uh, with the American dream, that there's still the op- upward mobility, excuse me, that there's still the opportunity for upward mobility in this country. And one thing we found was that rural and small town voters largely don't believe that's the case anymore, that this concept of upward mobility, that every generation has the opportunity to move forward up the socioeconomic ladder from the last, people don't believe that is true in this country anymore and that we have to change that, right? What are those messages that are values-based? And then healthcare is an illustration of that. And I agree with Jim 100%. We need to be talking about healthcare more. Um, that was one of the things we saw was a, a huge concern in our research with uh, voters in Midwestern battleground states in rural and small town communities. But it is a little bit different dynamic than how we talk about it in the rest of the country because, uh, for a large part, we talk about affordability and accessibility. And we talk about that, you know, the ability to get in to be seen by a provider and how much it costs versus how much what insurance covers, et cetera. And when we talk about access in small town and rural communities, what we find is that the, uh, Access often has to do with geography. The idea that it may be a half hour's drive to the nearest emergency room if there's a crisis. That if you mm-hmm. need to see a whether it's for your heart, whether it's an oncologist, that that may be a two and a half, three hour drive. We literally had a woman in a focus group who talked about the fact that uh, she had a chronic condition. Her doctors wanted her to see a specialist. The nearest specialist was two and a half to three hours away. She was supposed to be going to see him once a month, but she didn't because she already had to take off two days a month, one to take her mother three hours away to see a specialist, another to take her father half hours away to seek a specialist, and she could not afford to take a third day off work every month to see the specialist about her own chronic condition, right? And so those concepts of medical deserts, of the distance to the nearest provider or specialist is often what we talk about. I mean, you know, we've had over 100 rural hospitals close in this country in the last decade. 
it's creating a crisis with rural health care that we need to be able to talk about intelligently with voters in small town America. Yeah, absolutely. What a what a heart wrenching story. And sadly, I I have a feeling it's not exactly a story that's unique. Uh, Let's go back to the phone lines. Earl is calling in from Hyde Park. Earl, you're on with Isaac Wright and me. Go ahead. Hi, Isaac. Hi, Joan. Thank you for taking my call, and happy uh, season's greetings to both of you. Thank you. Thank you, Earl. I wanted to... Okay. When I was working, I traveled the country, and I'd have to go oftentimes in small towns. Um, that you know, you would call one horse towns. That let's say there was one manufacturing entity that supplied the majority of the jobs for that community, and often in those rural areas, I could not find CNN or MSNBC. So what I was saying was, the areas, the rural areas, were saturated by only one dimension, and that was conservative right-wing media. And so I don't know how you combat that without having the same kind of investment on the left that goes into these communities mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, take up, you know, it, it would not necessarily be profit- profitable, but would give them an alternative point of view, and they'd see that liberals, uh, uh, progressives, aren't these evil monsters that are coming to uh, take their to eat your babies and yeah, kill life. your dogs. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, Earl, let's let's ask Isaac to weigh in on that because Isaac, this is something that um, a lot of my friends who are involved in democratic politics we talk about all the time. That it seems like the Republicans, the conservatives, especially the billionaires, are much more invested in conservative media and making sure that there are conservative radio talk show hosts and conservative uh, radio. Stations and that, you know, with the death of Air America, the counterbalance on the other side of the aisle just doesn't seem to be there. Is that a is that something that you think would make a difference, whether it's with rural voters or any voter? A hundred and ten percent. I think if we could clone Joan Esposito and have. 200 Jones across the country with local focused radio shows, it would change the fabric of America's voting habits. So why don't the rich, why doesn't the Tom Steyer, how much money of his his fortune did he waste in an egocentric run for the presidency that was never going to get him anywhere? Why don't the Tom Steyers of the world invest in this? Where is the person in the Democratic Party that's reaching out to these people and saying, you know, Tom, you really want to help progressive Democratic causes? Do this with your money. Where is that, Isaac? It, it, it is unfortunately lost in short-term thinking, I feel like. I feel like we as – I feel like Democrats, progressive, we tend to think one election to the next. And if you look at how Republicans created this right-wing media ecosphere, it didn't happen in an election cycle. It didn't happen in two election cycles. It happened over decades. Um, there's a great book uh, by uh, David Brock and Ari Rabin Havitz, um, The Right-Wing Spin Machine. 
that does an academic historical look going back to like 1960s and the scapes and how then it became the Koch brothers decades later and how there was a right wing investment over decades to build a media ecosphere that could be self-sustaining separate from news and journalism. And uh, you don't see that kind of long-term thinking, I feel like, on the Democratic side about how we bring back uh, journalism and how we bring back mainstream news and journalism into political discourse in specific communities like what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Um, We have um, a lot more callers. So, Isaac, let's you and me take a break right now and uh, we will see if we can get everybody in who has a comment or question when we come right back. Local and progressive on WCPT 820. Isaac Wright is a partner with the Forward Solution Strategy Group. He is an expert in rural voting. We are taking your calls. Let's go back to the phone lines. Stephanie is calling in from Kankakee. Hey, Stephanie, you're on with me and Isaac Wright. Go ahead. Hi, guys. Two things. There are no pediatric wards in most rural hospitals. In Kankakee, if your kid gets really, you know, severely ill or whatever, they have to fly them into Chicago on a helicopter. And the nearest hospital from Kankakee South is an hour away in Waseca, and they're all trauma one hospital. Now, secondly, if anybody from a rural community wants to run for government, the state of Illinois offers training for free. And they even have people that give you grants to get you there and pay for your hotel so that you can learn how to run a government. You know, the, the Robert's Rules of, 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 of um, you know, some, uh, Robert's Rules of Order? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, how the Illinois government runs, what is right, you know, and how to run your community. So don't be afraid to run, because you will get the training. And you, it's not mandatory, but if you're going to run for an office and you've never run, because many rural people get in office and they have schoolhouse rock, you have no idea how to run the government. <laughs> yeah, we all need schoolhouse rock, don't we? Um, Stephanie, do you have a question for Isaac or just want him to react to your statements? My, my, my uh, reaction to him is when he was talking about rural, uh, um, the rural. It's worse than what people think it is. We have no pediatric ward mm-hmm. between two hours past Kankakee. And the next one is in Springfield. You have to be heliported if your child gets sexually ill. Or if you get a, an accident and you're horrible, you know, it's in horrible shape. They have to heliport you to Chicago. Yeah. Uh, Isaac, is so that pretty much when you hang on, hang on a second, uh, Stephanie, Isaac, when you look at rural areas, we were talking about health care and you were talking about the woman who had to abandon her own care because driving just for her family members was taking up so much of her time. Um, do uh, Stephanie's comments ring accurate with what you know of these communities? 
absolutely. We, you know, we talked earlier about the number of hospital of rural hospitals that have closed in this country over the last decade. And people don't often realize it's not just hospitals that are closing. There are departments within hospitals that are closing. And the uh, OB departments are closing at a faster rate than the overall hospital closure. So while we've had uh, over 100 hospital, rural hospitals closed in the country in the last decade, we've also seen even more OB departments close. That creates huge problems if you have a complicated pregnancy and you need specialists, uh, and there's not even a local OB department at your nearest hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephanie, thank you so much for that call. Um, I'm going to go back to the phone lines. Paul is calling in from Seattle, Washington. Go ahead, Paul. You're on with me and Isaac Wright. Oh, hi, John. Hello, Isaac. I got to tell you, Isaac, uh, I, I know we'd uh, get along eventually, but I'm just apoplectic over this conversation about, I mean, look, at, okay, let's take two things. First of all, you talked about upward mobility. Now, I have extended family in rural areas of Michigan, but they don't believe in upward mobility because they don't want to do anything. I mean, it's like, you know, there's no jobs in Fowlerville, Michigan, population 3,000, and it's all the Democrats' fault. And But why is there no jobs? And why don't they? They can't leave because, God, they have to leave their high school friends, you know? But one of them is like, he's 35. He's got three kids and a wife, and he's working as an assistant manager at a pizza place 20 hours a week. That's just, I mean, it's kind of like, can you, can, can you move? Can you go get a job somewhere besides, you know? You know what? That's like, Fowlerville is, is food, gas, lodging, next right. That's what Fowlerville is. The other thing is all of this, like the last caller, all of these rural, anywhere that's a rural health care center, how would these people vote for Republicans when all of these places are federally subsidized? They get DHS, disproportionate hospital share subsidies, just to stay open. Because if you have a hospital in Fowlerville or Petoskey, Michigan, the, the small population is not enough to support it like a big city, but it still costs just as much to have an emergency room that's equipped to do anything and you don't have the, the you don't have the tax base or the patient base so all of those places have to be subsidized by the federal government and that's what the democrats are doing but somehow all these people are hornswoggled by the republicans all oh, the democrats is what's making it they're the ones who are making your life miserable when it's really the fact that i hate to say be blunt I said fact is they don't have any initiative yeah they're angry and what Trump and the MAGAs do is try to convince them to be angry at somebody, for instance, like the person you can identify by their skin color or angry at somebody else except yourself or having no initiative. And then, no, they don't want to pay any taxes because they don't have any jobs to pay taxes. And everything they have is subsidized anyway. That's what it just drives me nuts and to have the Democrats, what, adjust their message to be as completely corrupted and contorted as the Republicans? I don't know. Okay, Paul, I understand that that's that there are people very much like what you're saying, but there's a lot of people who live in rural areas who are farmers or who work and live in small towns and have businesses. I mean, it's not it's not all that, um, you know, bad times mean that, you know, people are just reluctant to, you know, move to the big city. Um Isaac, you want to jump in here? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, for one thing, this goes back to exactly what we're talking about, about the need to get information out 
um, and the need for a better media system um, to get information out. I mean, we've seen, just like we've seen the closure of rural hospitals, we've seen the closure of rural weekly newspapers, right? Rural radio is largely being replaced by large networks that are buying up radio stations at the cost of nothing and just piping in national feeds, right? That means there is no more local radio news. There may no longer be a local weekly newspaper. And those are the kind of things that are creating an information vacuum. And that's something that we have to address um, if we're going to change things. Thank you, Paul. Thank you for the call. Um, Now, let's go back to the phone lines. Dave is calling in from Hoffman Estates. Hey, Dave, you're on with me and Isaac Wright. Go ahead. Hi, Joe. Not an original idea, but, um, you know, jury service is considered a civic duty, correct? Yeah. And if one is employed, you're excused for the day or wherever, and the company pays the employee the difference of a day's pay, you know, you know, and then and not charge the vacation time or anything. Well, why don't we push more for the, about something similar for employees when they take off to go vote, that they don't lose no pay, and then and bring back proof that they had voted, so they don't have to you know lose like a vacation day or or a day's pay. And companies that got unions, I would hope that they would try to push something like that in a contract in negotiations. Yeah, I think one thing that we could do is make voting easier, right? Whether it is providing time off from work, uh, a a law to protect people's time off from work to go vote the same way you have it for jury duty, uh, or if it's as simple as providing mail-in ballots, right? There are states that have moved uh, entirely to – I shouldn't say entirely – but have moved to mailing the entire electorate a mail-in ballot, and it's your option, right? You're going to get your ballot in the mail. All you have to do is fill it out and mail it back unless you proactively want to show up and vote in person. Um, And I think that either of those options um, that would make voting more accessible uh, is key to maintaining and protecting our democracy from threats. Because thinking about that, like back when President Obama was in, he had said he wanted to emulate President Roosevelt at one time with the make me, you know, the make me do this, you know, and, you know, it's something that perhaps they could uh, do with President Biden, you know, get something, some kind of a change to a law, you know, you might get a lot more, you know, turnout or people have uh, tossed around the ideas about making a national voting day or something like on a Saturday or something, you know, so people that are working that can't, make it that time, you know, for when the polls are open, you know, but just a thought anyway. <laughs> Thanks, Dave. Appreciate the call. Always appreciate your thoughts. Well, yes, we have, we have time. Let's go back to the phone lines. Robert is calling in from Gurney. Hi, Robert. Go ahead. You're on with me and Hi. Isaac. Uh, how are you doing? I, uh, thanks for taking my call. What I wanted to uh, uh, make a comment on is what, they were, is what uh, Isaac was talking about, rural hospitals. An excellent book to read is called The Hospital, and it thoroughly goes through this one particular community. I think it's in Nebraska, where they highlight the, the, uh, the health care deserts. In other words, 
that would be an example of how Democrats don't message. The ACA sounds good if you're in a metropolitan area, but if you're in a place where you can't even get to a hospital for that's four hours away, that message about how great the ACA is doesn't make any sense. The other thing that 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 rural and I live up in Lake County that rural people respond to, you start talking to them at all about collective bargaining, and I don't mean trade unions, I mean I mean open collective bargaining unions, they light up. They absolutely light up when I tell them I was able to make $10 an hour when I was 20. That today would be closer to almost 35 or 40 bucks an hour. They listen to this kind of thing. Hello? Well, thank Yes. No. No. Thank you for thank you for that call and that comment. Um, what about yeah. um, what, what do you say, Isaac, about his comments about unions? Yeah, I mean, the labor movement is the bedrock of American workforce protection, um, and I think we need to we need to protect that. And there is there's a dichotomy of the story that's playing out right now. Right, we see. Uh, more and more union unionization at uh, Starbucks and things. And at the same time, we see rural states like Tennessee that passed, uh, quote, right to work, i.e. Mm-hmm. anti-union, anti-labor, anti-worker, anti-working families uh, ballot initiatives to, to change their state constitutions, what, a, a week ago. Um, so I think that even as we're making advances, we're also losing ground. And so we have to push for those basic rights. The labor movement um, is a bedrock of this country, and we're losing it if we don't fight for it. Yeah. Thank you for the thank you for the call. Um, we don't have a lot of time left, but Isaac, I've got to get you to talk about Wisconsin before we go. Um, we put a lot of focus on Wisconsin. A lot of Illinoisans put a lot of effort into the races in Wisconsin. Certainly a, a success for Tony Evers. Not so much for uh, Mandela Barnes. Give me a, a, a Monday morning quarterback analysis. Yeah. I- I was not surprised by the Senate race uh, outcome. It it just looked like that was going to be the outcome uh, as Election Day approached following the race. Um, I think the lesser told story is the legislature. Um, I think that is a bigger uh, symptom of uh, of a fundamental problem we need to address. You know, right now, the Republicans almost want veto, uh, uh, veto proof majorities, right? That they could veto anything and everything Governor Evers did had they, uh, picked up two more seats in the House, right? They only needed mm-hmm. to pick up five seats in the House and one in the Senate. They picked up their seat in the Senate and they picked up two or three in the House. They, almost got enough votes. If we don't hold every single Democrat, then they can just override anything the governor does. And that is scary. Mm -hmm. We need to fundamentally address politics on the ground because we've got a bill from the legislature up. Yep. Absolutely. I I couldn't agree with you more. So looking back at, you know, there were... There were national columnists um, way before the midterms ever came around uh, who said that, you know, however much you might like him, that, you know, for Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes 
might have been too progressive a candidate. And then there are people who say, well, you know, they ran a great campaign, but there was all that, you know, frankly, billionaire money that poured in at the last minute. And Ron Johnson was able to start running all those attack ads that associated Mandela Barnes with crime. So was it both of those things? Was it neither of those things? Yeah, I think it was both. It was both. It was it was all of the above. Um, I think some of those attack ads at the end were very effective, um, whether they were genuine or not seems uh, a moot point after the fact. They seem like they were very much taking things out of context to make a cheap political attack, but they were nonetheless effective. Um, and and that, you know, when we don't have a 365-day-a-year Democratic infrastructure in rural counties, then it opens us up that those mm-hmm. shots and can really make a difference in the outcome of elections. And I think we saw that play out uh, on Election Day. Isaac, thank you so much for joining us. I love listening to you talk about your research and what you found. It is really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to have more local politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Before the midterm election, we at WCPT traveled around to various counties in Illinois to talk to the Democratic organizations there, to talk to the Democratic candidates there. One of the places where we had... A real lot of fun was in Will County. Uh, Joshua McCluskey is uh, the one who shepherds around and can, keeps in line the Will County Dems. And uh, he joins us now to talk about the midterms. Joshua, how are you? I am doing well, John. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. You know, before we get into the politics I think your personal family story is so interesting for the for the listeners who didn't hear it that day. Uh, could you uh, tell the listeners again how you came to be what you are doing now? Sure. Um, so I I did not grow up in the Chicagoland region. I actually grew up in, in deep, deep southern Illinois. Um, it, for those of you, your listeners that don't know, um, there's actually significantly more Illinois south of Champaign. Uh, in fact, there's a large portion of Illinois that is uh, actually further south than some of Kentucky. Uh, and that's that's where I grew up. I grew up in a small town of about 10,000 people. Uh, and my my dad was a was the last president of the coal miners union um, down in Harrisburg, Illinois, in Saline County. Um and, and I got to actually watch what would happen if uh, a union started to disappear uh, and saw how it affected the community and, and my friends, families, uh, their parents when I was growing up. Uh, and so that, that had a pretty significant impact on me of, of really understanding the power of unions. But then my father actually became uh, the kind of clerk. He started uh, running elections in Southern Illinois uh, and became the, the Democratic County Chairman of Saline County. Uh, and I, I got my first taste of politics um, at about the age of eight uh, when he kept making me, he, he made me an eight-year-old go knock on doors with him uh, <laughs> every day. 
which was, as an eight-year-old, was not my favorite thing in the entire world. Uh, it actually turned me off of politics for a little while until I, until I went to college. Uh, and I, I, I had a political science class. And because of my family background, I, I knew a lot about how politics actually worked. And um, the professor uh, walked up to me after I'd written some random paper and told me, hey, you know a lot about this. You're smart. You should do this. Uh, and so I was like, well, nobody's ever told me I should do this for a living. So and it's a <laughs> business, I guess I should. Uh, so I switched majors and then ended up getting a, a bachelor's in political science and a master's in it. Uh, focusing on quantitative methodology, and then realize that political theory doesn't actually tell you much of anything about how real elections are run and how politics affects everyday people, uh, at least not as much as I would like. So I, I sort of put aside theory uh, and, and academia and went into actual politics and became uh, a consultant who works uh, trying to get mostly local races um, get local Democrats elected in their races. Um, so I'm that's, curious I, about I just, I think it, oh, what ahead. you just said about when you were studying political science and you compared that with what you already knew from your experience uh, through your family, that you felt that the theory um, didn't necessarily reflect real world politics. Talk about that. What was what's different about real world politics from the theories that are taught in classrooms? Sure. So political theorists, especially at the university level, really try to distance themselves from the humanity of politics. Um, it it becomes this sort of clinical examination of a thing that affects everyone, whether they realize it or not, uh, and not, not just taxes um, at the federal level, but basic rules of how to operate, um, that, being able to get a home loan effectively, being able to buy milk um, when inflation is out of control. And I always looked at these these professors who were giving me these very broad theories of how politics worked, about how the parties communicated with each other. And it was all based on these sort of grand ideals and, and ivory tower discussions of how the parties aligned and what their messaging was and what was effective and what was not. And it, it left out sort of the, the, real world experience of the old Chicago adage that politics ain't beanbag. It is a rough <laughs> and tumble sport where people throw haymakers and say terrible things about each other. Uh, that does not get discussed in academia. You are, no one explains what a <laughs> 20 person candidate forum at, uh, at the local retirement community does to political theory. Uh, it just sort of blows it up. Um, so knowing all that, I, I was I was never one for the theory based part of it. I'm much more practical in what I try to do. Mm hmm. Yeah, well, that that makes a lot of sense. And 
I think in probably every area, the theory of political science is somewhat different than the than the day to day. But I have to believe that what you're saying here in Illinois, that seems especially pronounced that difference. You know, the way politics is. Somebody told me when I first came to Chicago that politics was a blood sport here. And, you know, that's not far off. No, it's definitely not. I mean, it's it's that way across Illinois. Illinois has a very specific sort of party structure to it, both on the Republican side and the Democratic side, where there is there is a lot of clashing between the parties that you don't necessarily find everywhere else. Um, they show, like they show up to the same things. They go to the same events. Uh, candidates are encouraged to be near their opponents. Uh, in a way that isn't necessarily what the candidates would prefer, but <laughs> Illinois politics wants you to really wants you to mix it up with your opponent. And across Illinois, we've always seen that the politicians that are willing to do that do the best, and the ones that shy away from that have a tendency to sort of fade into obscurity. Yeah. Um, I want to talk to you about some of the candidates uh, who was well in Will County, some of the ones we interviewed on the radio and maybe some of the ones who weren't able uh, to join us. I do want you to know that Larry Walsh, who's the state rep, 87th district, I was so impressed with his, you know, what he was talking about, you know, recycling and infrastructure Next week, um, is it next week? I get confused. Yes. My God, is Thanksgiving next week? How did that happen? Um, the yeah. days before Thanksgiving, we're going to be taking a look at climate change and recycling and things to do for the planet. And Larry's going to join us next week. I'm so thrilled uh, that he's going to come back and talk some more about um, that. Of uh, The people we, we interviewed when we were there, how did our candidates do? They did ex- Exceptionally well. Um, so uh, in the Will County Democratic Coordinated Campaign, which is uh, I was, what I was the director of, um, we had 24 candidates. We won 17 of the races. Um, Excellent. The only, yes. So we, we kept control of uh, the Democrats in a year they absolutely should not have. Uh, kept control of county government, um, the county clerk, the treasurer, the sheriff, uh, and uh, were able to keep uh, 11 seats on the county board, making it a tied split government, except for the fact that the county executive breaks ties, uh, which, and Jennifer Bertino Terrence is a Democrat, so Democrats actually have maintained control of the county board as well. Um, it was it was a very good night, uh, and probably the best part about it was uh, after decades and decades and decades, um, over the last four years, we have elected four Democratic circuit judges. Um, we just found out that Jessica Colonsier, uh will win her race yesterday once the vote by males all got counted. Uh, and that means that for the first time in decades is Democrats have control of the Will County Circuit Court, meaning that they now get to appoint sub-circuit judges and have control of which cases are heard by who. It's a really big deal to... And, I think we've all sort of learned uh, on the more liberal side of things that the courts are actually very important, uh, and it's bad if we don't focus on them. Uh, Having control of the circuit means we will see a more just 
justice system in Will County. Uh, and that's that's something I'm I'm very, very proud of all of the Democrats in Will County uh, being able to accomplish, because this has been this has been a labor for the past several years of focusing on judicial races mm-hmm. and really bringing those candidates into the party and making them feel welcome and not not just ignoring the back of the ballot, uh, yeah. as we, we've had a tendency to do in the past. Um, Joshua, we need to, to take a break. We are going to continue our discussion. I'm talking to Joshua McCluskey, Will County Democratic Party. We'll be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. I'm joined by Joshua McCluskey. He uh, leads the Will County Dems. We did a remote uh, out there talking to a number of candidates, and uh, it looks like the Democratic Party had a lot of success out in Will County. Joshua was just naming some of the races where they they had some real good results. Um, one of the things that you and I talked about before was this idea that somehow that if you are outside of a large urban area like Chicago, then, you know, you live in an area that tends to vote Republican. And for a long time, a lot of the collar counties were considered pretty red. But that really is changing. What do you see, Joshua? I see what everybody else is seeing, which is um, as people move into the suburbs, uh, and as they expand further and further into the collar counties, as, as things continue to build up, we are seeing uh, this rise of Democratic victories in the collar counties. Um, there's a bunch of reasons for that. Um, general education level uh, increasing, uh, large, uh, larger amounts of money being pushed into these areas, and uh, more than anything, the Democratic parties in these areas have sort of just gotten their act together. Um, they are wildly robust parties at this point, not just Will County, but DuPage County, Lake County, Kane County. All of these sort of collar Democratic parties have really started to come into their own and the reason that they are having so much success is because you, John, you remember Howard Dean, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the former presidential candidate. He had uh, a a theory that I ascribe to and have my entire political career. Um, when he became head of the DNC, he pushed the 50 state strategy, which essentially was Democrats are going to compete in all 50 states. We are not going to leave anything on the table, and we're not going to tell ourselves that Democrats can't win in certain areas. We are going to put time and money and resources into everywhere. And that's how you make change. You flip rural counties blue by spending time and effort and energy and love in these counties organizing, recruiting volunteers, building a party infrastructure. And that's what's happened in the collar counties. They have invested, the party has invested in these areas, and now we're seeing the dividends. It, it took a little while for us to get there, but right now it's looking a lot like several of the collar counties are 
Democratic strongholds at this point. It it is hard to see Republicans winning overwhelmingly in in any of the college counties. It's so interesting, Joshua, that you say that. I spent the hour before this talking to uh, a man who's with a political group and they do all kinds of research and their expertise is rural voting. And he said to me just not more than an hour ago that one of the biggest, most important ways that Democrats win in rural areas was having an infrastructure that isn't just simply created around election time, but having a democratic infrastructure in these rural areas that is there and up and running and working 365 days a year. That seems like what you're saying to me, too. Yes, I uh, I, I agree 100 percent. Um, elections capture the public eye for about three months uh, every couple of years, Uh couple of months in the primary, a couple of months in the general. Um, at least the, the, the larger, not political junkie uh, voting yeah. members. Um, but real political change requires an investment outside of those months. It requires having the willingness to invest funds outside of elections in organizing, in staff resources, in events, in even mailing out to the voters we are trying to convince to get out and vote for us. Because here's the thing about democratic politics that we really need to remember every time we go into this, one of these races, which is there are more of us than there are of the other team. Thank you, Joshua. That is like my tagline. That is like my mantra. I have been saying that. Uh, Thank you for for echoing that sentiment. I think you're brilliant, of course, because I agree with you. Um, That is so important. And it's true. It's true on the statistical level. I mean, if you look at the voter registrations and the voting history of pretty much everywhere except the most Republican strongholds, there are actually more Democrats than there are Republicans everywhere but <laughs> yep. they just don't show up if you just showed up i i know it feels and i know i know that it feels like there's no point sometimes i know that it feels like it's a republican area they are entrenched we can't do anything we'll we'll never win and that is not true there are more of you than you think even in those those retirement communities that i was talking about earlier in will county when we would when we host meet and greets there or have events there, inevitably someone walks up to me and goes, "I didn't know there were Democrats here. I thought it was just mm. me. Like nobody yep. has Democratic signs. Nobody talks about it. They just it's the the Republicans are just very loud uh, and somewhat angry. So I don't talk about it. But I'm so happy to have discovered there are other Democrats, and then they make friends with each other and they form their own little group and. Democrats start rising up and areas turn blue. That's how it happens everywhere. In Will County, we invested heavily into our more rural regions. We invested in uh, Frankfort Township, uh, Homer Township, uh, and New Lenox Township, which are historically very Republican areas. 
I refused to give up ground there. Um, so when they came to me and said, hey, we want to we want to go out knocking, we want to canvas or we want to do a mailer. My reaction was always tell me how I can help. Yeah. Um, and it, I could do that, thankfully, because uh, we in Will County are lucky. We have to. We have several very, very involved state legislators um, who really care about making sure that Democrats are elected across the county. Um, state Representative Larry Walsh Jr., who's going to be on with you next week, uh, is one of those people. Uh, and the other is uh, Assistant Democratic Majority Leader Natalie Manley. The investments they have been willing to make into the county organization. I have never seen before, and they are the reason that we are able to invest in these rural counties. Uh, both of them invested over $100,000 each into local candidates uh, this cycle. Uh, county board, sheriff, treasurer, county clerk. Uh, that's not something that normally happens. Uh, you don't normally see state representatives willing to spend outside of their district mm -hmm. uh, and to see two that were willing to not only spend outside of their district, but spend very large amounts of money outside of their district. That is why that's why we were able to do the things that we've been able to do in Will County. And that's the thing that's lacking in a lot of these places is is the resources. In some places, there's the will to build these these organizations and this infrastructure, but there there isn't necessarily the resources. And so, if I was to encourage anything, it would be for your listeners to encourage their local state representatives and state senators to get involved more at the local level and see that. Democrats winning in these rural areas makes it easier for them to win, because if Republicans are having to fight to keep their strongholds safe, mm -hmm. they can't go out and make trouble elsewhere. And <laughs> we have an easier time in those more uh, purple districts because suddenly there is not this wave of Republican money coming in uh, and, and door knockers and mail into these more purple areas because they are busy trying to defend their home turf. Uh, and so Makes having, perfect having sense. Effect, yeah. yeah. Makes perfect and, sense. And that's sort of the, I was just going to say uh, we're at a point where we need to take another another break. Um, so hang on, uh, Joshua. I'm talking to Joshua McCluskey from the Will County Dems. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Joined by the head of the Will County Democrats, Joshua McCluskey. We have been talking not just about Will County and the people there who uh, we um, we sort of gave a little airtime to in an effort to get their candidacies a little bit more publicity. But we've been talking about the whole idea of what is possible in rural areas and what it takes to win in rural areas. And it was interesting talking to Isaac Joshua because he was talking about how you know, we've, we've come to think of rural areas as Republican and, oh, we've got so much work to do. But it hasn't always been that way. 
Isaac was telling me, reminding me that uh, Bill Clinton was hugely popular with rural voters. So it isn't something that was, um, it's not something that's always been out of our reach. It just seems to be something that um, we forget about from time to time. One of the other things that um, I was reading a political strategist write was the idea that it, which ties into exactly what you said, Joshua, you've got to have candidates on the ballot. You, even if you know it is a heavily favored Republican incumbent, if you've got to have somebody on the ballot, there's, you know, there's no way you win if you don't have a candidate on the ballot. That's like the bare minimum. And as you said, it also causes the other party to have to spend their resources more widely than focusing on a few races that they're trying to turn. Yeah, it, it's one of the things that I it, politics is often described as a game um, that it, it, it's a blood sport, as you said, that it that it has all these rules to it, and often we we don't sort of take that to the next level of understanding that just like you would in, in any other game, there are resources that you can spend uh, to make things happen. Um, So being able to essentially bottle up Republican uh, resources in their own territory so that you, even, even if you're not able to keep them completely from, uh, engaging in the democratic areas or, or the more um, purple areas, there still is a noticeable impact. Not allowing a sitting state senator who's been there for 25 years and who is beloved all over, not allowing him to wander around to other people's districts to stump for them is because he is worried about his own race, because mm-hmm. politicians are sort of inherently worried about their own race. Uh, it, it's really difficult to make them not worried about their own race, no matter how safe they are. Um, keeping them bottled up and not doing fundraisers or town halls or just special appearances with these insurgent Republican candidates or even these weaker incumbent Republican candidates, that that does pay off in the end. It it'll it makes them weaker. It keeps Republican voters from being as excited. There's that is an effective strategy for actually making a difference and getting Democrats elected. And we need to do more of it. Absolutely. We need to do more of it. I'd like to uh, run down. Um, some of the people that I, I spoke with. Um, how did Mike Kelly do? We interviewed him. He was running to, uh, for re-election as Will County Sheriff. Uh, Mike Kelly uh, won, actually won his race. Uh, we we came out of election day a little bit down, but um, yesterday we finally counted all of the vote-by-mail ballots in Will County. Um, every vote-by-mail ballot that's postmarked by election day gets counted. Um, because they they voted by election day, uh, and when you counted those uh, vote by mails, overwhelmingly tend to favor Democrats. And so uh, Mike went from being down about five hundred ish votes to winning by about twenty two hundred uh, yesterday. Wow, that's amazing. And you know, you and I have talked about this, but it's worth repeating. the The people who say 
I'm not going to go. My vote doesn't matter. I'm just a drop in the bucket. When you get to down-ballot races, every vote matters. I mean, look at what you just said. You know, a candidate, and we saw this, especially with the write-ins, a candidate who's down and suddenly surges and wins. We've seen races that have been won by a mere handful of votes. It's um, it so depresses me when people people say that, and I always try to, to counter that. Do you have any demographics yet? I know it's still new on uh, the age breakdown of your voters in Will County. We don't have full numbers um, yet. My team is actually working on that right now. Um, I have a I have an incredibly wonderful team of actually young people who are invested in this. The Will County Young Democrats are a fairly new organization that have hit the ground running. And when I came back in and started to build a coordinated campaign, they actually were the people I immediately begin to lean on uh, and invest in because they were passionate. They wanted to do it. And that's that's sort of what we saw all over the country is a this generation of young people is so invested in politics. And I attribute that it, the Internet is both a wonderful and terrible place, as we, we discussed a few weeks ago. Um, but what it has done is it's given all of this information to young people in a way that no other generation, even as an elder millennial, I, I didn't have until I was in high school. Um, and having access to an enormous number of cultures and people who are different than you and just facts, just information constantly being available to you at any point has done a lot to help those people see through I'm trying to think of a nicer way to say absolute (laughs) lies, but I can't. Absolute lies by the Republicans. And so you saw them come out in such a wide margin this election that it it saved an enormous number of Democrats uh, across the entire country. And there was a very large youth turnout in Will County, just anecdotal reports that I received on election day from candidates and poll watchers were, I've never seen so many young people in this precinct before. I can't believe it. Um, And I got those reports from everywhere. And if there is a lesson to take away from this midterm that I hope everyone grabs onto tightly, it is hopefully destroying that lie that your vote doesn't matter. It absolutely does. Democrats should be in mourning right now. We should absolutely not have control of the Senate, and we should absolutely not be still somehow in the running to keep control of the House. And we are in those fights because people decided that their vote actually mattered. Yep. And yep. if we can remember that for two more years, when we are <laughs> in a presidential race and the orange man is Hopefully not back on the ballot, but he's, I don't know what's going to happen there. I'll be honest. Um, we will see a Democratic surge in this country if we just keep that momentum of, no, my vote matters. I helped 
keep the Senate blue. I helped keep Republicans from having complete and total overwhelming control of the House. I helped turn Will County, my local government blue that does tax levies, that keeps my libraries open, that paves my local roads. Everyone, your vote matters. I promise you it does, even if it does not feel like it all the time. Yeah. Um, Joshua, we have a caller who wants to join our conversation. Brian from Joliet has a question for you. Brian, go ahead. You're on with me and Joshua McCluskey. Hi, Joan. Hope you're doing well, and hello to your guest. Uh, my question is, uh, uh, do you uh, know the uh, status uh, right now of uh, North Point uh, uh, Industrial Park, uh, whether that is uh, completely passed or is still up in the air? I believe that it is a done deal, and I know that North Point is uh, an incredibly uh, difficult subject. Um, it, it, yes, it is. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, and and it, I completely understand why. Um, there, there is a. I don't know if anybody's driven on on I eighty lately, but it's not the most fun experience in the entire world. Um, at this point, I would say that it most likely is going to go forward, and that isn't a bad thing if we do it correctly. If we invest in roads and bridges that don't have truck traffic in places we very much don't want it, if we invest in our interstate so that they're not constantly being torn up and are problematic, um, well, it's, it's not me, sir. the worst thing. I might just make a real brief comment. On this, um, uh, it's, uh, well, uh, me being older than over two-thirds of the American population, it won't affect me for long, but I think of the young in nature, and it's uh, uh, my understanding that it's going to in- increase the air pollution uh, around here by over uh, uh, twi- uh, uh, double the air pollution uh, and also be uh, lead to the destruction of the Meduan Prairie, and I think... Uh, this is a, a very uh, sad and uh, terrible thing myself. Yeah. The end of my thought on that one was we can do all these things to make it work. I'm not entirely sure that we are at this time. And I, I know mm-hmm. that there's an enormous amount of people who are, are very invested in fighting against this project. I can tell them that I can tell you at this point, it's likely a done deal, but I would not stop going to meetings. I would not stop trying to be involved. And I would be pushing for some of those things that I just talked about and fixing the things that you talked about substantially more investment from this project, not just in building this intermodal facility, but also building green infrastructure that can overcome what is going to inevitably happen when you put a whole bunch more trucks on the road, that we're seeing significant more investment in infrastructure. If we don't have that, it's a problem. And the only way that we're going to get that is if people continue to stand up and talk about it. Uh, and if we don't do that, the the fears uh, that you have are are likely to uh, come true because we have to invest in those things. And if we don't, this is just 
this is just a project that we're doing that's going to, sure, increase the truck traffic and and the uh, movement of goods and services, but that's not great if it destroys the community around us. We need to take a break, guys. I really yeah. appreciate uh, your take, uh, giving me the time. And uh, keep in mind, uh, the wind does also blow north, and it will. Uh, the pollution would also affect the Chicago, Chicago, uh, Cook County too. And uh, I am concerned about global warming and climate change as well. So, but I thank you both very much. Thank you for the call, Brian. Um, Joshua and I are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. On WCPT 820. I'm joined by Joshua McCluskey. He is with the Will County Democratic Party. We actually uh, drove out to Will County and uh, did this show remotely so that we could sort of shine a light on some of their candidates. Joshua, I know that um, many, if not most, of your candidates did very well. Was there one candidate or one race that really surprised you? Good or bad? <laughs> either way. Uh, either way. Um I was Mike Flanagan uh, was running for county board in Will County Board District Three, which includes University Park um, and parts of uh, Frankfort Township. Um, he knocked on more doors than I have ever seen a local county board candidate knock on. Uh, he was. He is incredibly charming, uh, incredibly knowledgeable, uh, is a lifelong firefighter who uh, who has a special needs um, child, and he has invested time and effort into helping advocate for um, those children with special needs. Um, Due to a whole bunch of factors, uh, he unfortunately did not make it onto the county board. And if I have to sort of point out one that I am disappointed in, it would be that one. Um, now, that being said, there's there's several that I'm very, very happy about. Um, I'm ecstatic that Lauren Staley Ferry remains the county clerk. Um, having the county clerk is worth about 2 to 3% additional votes for Democrats just because they don't, Democratic county clerks don't generally try to, you know, uh, restrict people from voting or make what things a thought. Um Yeah, I know, right? Uh, it hasn't helped that people actually be able to vote um, near their homes. Um, so keeping her in office makes me incredibly happy um, because we will continue to expand early voting and vote by mail in Will County, and we won't see it go backwards. Yeah, I remember interviewing um, the county board candidate, the the firefighter. I thought he was really impressive, uh, and he certainly seemed to be someone who was willing to do the work. But you know what? One defeat does not necessarily mean the end of a political career. I mean, pretty much any candidate especially you look at the ones who reach the Senate or a much higher office, and it's not all victories in their background. It's just a determination not to give up. 
Yeah, name identification is a real thing in politics, and your first run for office is hard, um, especially if you are in a purple district like Mike was in. Um, I don't know what he's going to run for next, but I am excited to find out, and I look forward to helping him. What would you say? You talked about name recognition, um, and we all know that that means a lot. And frankly, I think... Um, I think a lot of times, Joshua, that people who know they have no chance at winning a race, you know, gather signatures and, and, and go after something simply because they know they want to be in office down the road. They know that this really is uh, a reach for them. But this way, people will hear their name and maybe next time around, it'll be, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember. Yeah, I remember that. Um what other factors, name recognition, what other factors really uh, contribute to a winning campaign? The willingness to engage in direct voter contact. Um, the the thing I, I told all of my candidates um, and, and tell them every time uh, they decide to put their hat in the ring to run for office is uh, in order to win a race, the door knocking should continue until morale improves. Uh, it is it is it is it is go knock on doors go talk to a voter try and get them out the door persuade them that you are the most valuable candidate it's the worst thing eight-year-old me still remembers traipsing up and down (laughs) the streets of harrisburg illinois it's awful no one really enjoys it but it is the thing that'll get you elected Every single time, if you talk to wow. people and 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 I will add a caveat of talking to people that are actually registered to vote and who aren't the, the most staunch Republicans you've ever come into. Talk to your local party about getting some actual help on your targeting. Um, but you absolutely like that's the way to win. That, that's the way you win any race uh, below Congress is go knock on all the doors that you can um, devote the time and energy to it. And that is the thing that will get you elected every time without fail. Wow. Uh, We only have a a little few seconds left. Is there any message you want to leave my listeners with? The best message that I can give to Democrats is to remember that primaries are a time when we have family disagreements. And at a certain point, yes, there are differences in policy in the Democratic Party. There just are. Uh, And they're strong. And they are something that we have a tendency to fall into the trap of, if I don't get everything, I don't want anything. And I just want to remind everybody that no matter how big our disagreements in primaries, the enemy is still outside. It's not here with us. It is people who want to take away reproductive rights to take away the rights of LGBTQ plus people who want to empower corporations and the rich and not the middle and lower class. The, and this is what I say, the best Republican I've ever met is still worse than the most mediocre Democrat I've ever met because (laughs) that Democrat's not going to try and harm me per like people that I love and care about. And I know that. Joshua, I ter- I really enjoy talking to you on the radio. I think you're terrific, and I hope you will uh, join us again in the near future. Anytime, Joe. Just give me a call and let me know. 
Thank you. Joshua McCluskey with the Will County Dems. That's going to do it for me. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is next. I will see you tomorrow at, well, hear you, and you will hear me, not exactly see, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Until then, have a great evening. Good night.